All eyes on the oil market with Brent crude at $83.88 on concerns that Russia will reduce supply. So that is keeping things interesting this holiday season. Hello and welcome everyone to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. I wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy Holidays, whatever you might celebrate this holiday season. It has been nice to enjoy a little bit of a slower pace out here, but we do continue and it's getting interesting on the oil front. Dan Jurgen has come out, the noted famed oil analyst, he has come out and he says there's a chance for oil to go as high as $121 a barrel when China reopens. This is CNBC. Their base case is $90 a barrel, which is kind of interesting because I thought the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, they were going to buy back the oil for something like $70 in the U.S. So I'm not sure how that works. So it's all shaping up to be a pretty interesting landscape as ever. And gold remains above $1,800. I mean, what does CNBC have it at here? $1,810. And silver remains above $24 an ounce. Copper at $3.87. It's quite interesting. Things don't seem as great as they might have seemed a couple of weeks ago for Western policymakers. I mean, you got the U.S. 10-year bond at 3.82%. So that is rising. The U.K. 10-year is at 3.64%. You know, like we're not that far off from those 4% bonds that we were seeing not that long ago. And the German 10-year, which we also don't really look at that much here, is at 2.5%. So put it this way, we don't seem like we're that far away should things go wrong. We seem like a hop, a skip, and a jump away from where we were, frankly, from some of the more unpleasant numbers, shall we say, from 2022. Even, again, Dan Jurgen here saying that we could hit oil at $121 a barrel, and he's sort of like a pretty sober oil analyst and one of the most respected, and he's saying that Prices could retake $120 when China fully reopens, which would be, according to CNBC, the same levels as March highs after Russia invaded Ukraine. And we all remembered what happened to gas prices at that point. So let's just take a quick look closely at what's being said here, because it kind of is the topic of the hour here, at least in the natural resources space. Our base case for 2023 is $90 for Brent. And this is, again, Dan Jurgen, But you have to look at other cases. And he's basically saying with the China reopening, basically, we could hit $121 a barrel, building on strains caused by underinvestment in oil and gas. On the flip side, Jurgen said prices could fall to around $70 per barrel in a recession. It all sounds about right, doesn't it? Which would suggest, I mean, if we were to extrapolate a little bit on what Dan Jurgen is saying, we're at oil at $84 Brent crude, $84.03, which would suggest, according to Dan Jurgen, that we're on the lower end of that range right now. And again, comparing to where we were, only December 12th, we were at $76. Now we're at $84. So I guess we're 10% higher. I mean, that's not crazy this year. The low for 20. 22. Let's just take a look at that. I mean, this is interestingly just a year ago. So December 27th, 2021, 
We were at $78.60 before it went on a massive climb up all the way to $123 per barrel on June 9th and then climbed all the way back down to 76. So like if you look at last year's chart, I mean, we did actually, this does not include the Russia spike, which went up to $127. But if we just look at the general trend, it basically moved all the way up until June 8th, 2022 to $123.58. The high was almost $128 in March, but we could argue there's a lot of sentiment there. There was a lot of shock really at what had happened. So not to discount that. But, you know, other than that anomaly, we see basically a mountain here that oil has climbed up and has climbed down. And we're kind of not that far from where we started. So sounds like Dan Jurgen is using that as a bit of a range on where we could go this year. So very interesting. So other than that, I mean, commodity prices remain buoyant is how I would describe it. Nickel at $13.43. Copper at $3.77 per pound. Zinc at $1.35. I mean, they remain, particularly copper and nickel, which are crucial, they remain fairly buoyant. And again, gold and silver remain fairly buoyant. So I feel like we're at yellow light indicators here, just below like orange indicators on so many markets. Oil, bonds, metals. And then you look at the market. And if we just finally look at the markets here. I mean, it's probably a yellow indicator as well, where there we are at 3,800, you know, on the S&P, we're at 3,837. And you look at the last year, I mean, the low was 3,588. So we are 10% above the low. So you see where I'm going with this. Like we're kind of, warning signs are flashing yellow here. We are not in the green, I would say. We were kind of in the green in early December you might say, but now we're starting to get in the yellow zone, you know, so let's wait and see how things go. And we are in Santa Claus rally territory here. Again, they say it's the last five trading days of the year and the first two trading days of the new year. So we're tracking that over here at the Northern Miner podcast. And we have a wonderful show lined up for you today with Ira Thomas, my interview with her at the Canadian Mining Symposium in London. It is a primer on the diamond market. So if you are new to the diamond market or you don't know that much, this is your interview where I really get Ira to give us the lowdown on the whole diamond market and where we stand at the end of 2022. It's educational and entertaining, everything we like to do here. So I'm looking forward to that. And we have some great news stories for you. And with that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, Northern Miner, inflation hits miners. Quote, it has never been more expensive to build or operate a mine in the U.S. This is by Nicholas LePan. And taking a closer look, it has never been more expensive to operate or build a mine. According to new research from CostMine, although not all costs are rising equally. In late November, Michael Sinden, vice president of data with the Northern Miner Group, presented inflation data at the Canadian Mining Symposium in London, showing that mining operation and capital expenditures are reaching 20-year highs. And it is quite the chart, actually. 
Sinan pointed out that this data is not a big surprise given the current economic climate, but there is more to the story. Quote, there is no question mine costs are increasing and will continue to do so, but the ability to pinpoint where inflation is coming from and the ability to mitigate it is critical. End quote. Mill and surface operation expenditures experienced the biggest uptick due to exposure to fuel and electricity costs, raw materials, regents, grinding media, and liners. The bulk of costs come from fuel, explosives, chemicals, and electricity, or as Sinan puts it, quote, anything hydrocarbon related is inflating costs at a mine, end quote. Mill and underground capital expenditures are a serious source of inflation as deeper mines and expensive milling equipment are driving up costs. Since 2015, costs have risen 7% on a compound annual growth rate basis or 60% compounded over this period. That's pretty wild. When it comes to labor, costs aren't the problem, at least not yet, cost mine data shows. The hourly rate for labor at U.S.-based mines is only rising at 28 to 3.5% compound, and salaries are growing at a 29 to 3.9% CAGR. All this is coming at a time when metal demand is accelerating due to a mineral and metal-intensive energy transition and increased scrutiny of the mining industry's own carbon footprint. So you can read the whole article on northernminer.com. Inflation is hitting miners hard, and it sounds like energy is the prime suspect here. Anything hydrocarbon-related is inflating costs at a mine. Small headline here, it sounds bigger than it is. Hedge funds lose court fight for LME disclosure of nickel crisis communication. So basically, this is Bloomberg News via mining.com. So it doesn't mean that the hedge funds have lost the court fight with the LME. They just lost a battle where they want the LME to disclose transcripts of phone calls and communications before it canceled all those nickel trades worth billions of dollars. And we have a quote from the judge. I am not satisfied that the disclosure sought would assist the dispute to be resolved without proceedings or would save costs, according to Adrian Beltrami, who is the judge, nor do I consider it appropriate as a matter of discretion. So just a small battle lost by the hedge funds there in their ongoing court drama with the LME. This story here, another Bloomberg story via mining.com, Congo to formalize gold trade, change tax. This is super interesting. And let me just dig into it a bit here. Democratic Republic of Congo will implement several initiatives to increase revenue and improve financial transparency in the new year, including a plan to formalize the artisanal gold trade and amend an agriculture law to encourage foreign investment, government officials said. The copper and cobalt producer is looking to diversify its sources of income after a bumper year in mining that will result in nearly 7% economic growth. The government also plans to expand income taxes and offer tax exemptions in special economic zones, the officials said. Now, that's all the news article. Here's the quote where things get pretty meaty. According to Finance Minister Nicholas Kazadi, who said last week on the sidelines of the U.S.-Africa summit, quote, the goal is to become a processing country, not just a production country. Again, that first two paragraphs there didn't get to the meat of the issue here, which is exactly what we're seeing in Indonesia. They want to process the metal. They don't want to ship it out somewhere else. In other words, they want to take control of their supply chain and their refining capacity because they understand that that's where a lot of the money is. So, again, the global south, as Paul at the Sirius Report and other people call it, they're getting pretty wise to this whole thing. Now, 
I mean, the last time we saw Indonesia mentioned that Europe was bringing Indonesia to the WTO. Is Europe now going to bring Congo to the WTO? Because I tell you, whether Europe has a case or not, it's a pretty bad look, isn't it? That, you know, Europe is bringing these global South countries to the WTO over wanting to refine their own metals. So anyways, it'll be super interesting to watch what happens here. Congo is one of the world's richest countries in terms of natural resources, but has long been a difficult place to do business due to corruption, conflict, and limited infrastructure. I do recommend people, if they haven't listened to the ESG and the DRC episode, which I did on the side of the Canadian Mining Symposium last month, I highly recommend that. So millions are in the Congo are currently displaced in the east of the country due to fighting fueled in part by the illicit trade in minerals like tantalum and gold. So... Isn't that interesting? So the fighting is actually about resources. You know, need we remind ourselves here? All this stuff, like these things get turned into tiny details in these news stories. We have to go to the quote here to really get to the meat of it. And the finance minister was crystal clear. The goal is to become a processing country, not just a production country. Now, as far as this illicit trade in minerals like Tantalman Gold, very interesting paragraph follows it. The government is hoping to break that link after signing a deal with the United Arab Emirates, quote, that will allow us to buy all the gold produced by the artisanal sector. And this is, again, Finance Minister Nicholas Kazadi. So he, he is breaking through the news noise here, delivering another big story. So the UAE, remember Paul was saying that there's all sorts of refining that the UAE was building? So... Let's just continue this. Most of Congo's smuggled gold transits through Rwanda and Uganda and ends up in Dubai, he said. The UAE and Congo are putting infrastructure in place to formalize the market, he said, without giving more details. You know what it sounds like to me, if I had to speculate? It sounds like the UAE might be building the refiner in the Congo. That is my pure speculation here. But the UAE is saying to the Congo, guys, we'll build it for you. You can refine there. You sell us the gold, we get a discount probably. I mean, just to really go crazy speculating here. Continuing on, raw lithium exports banned in Zimbabwe as demand and prices soar. So Africa's getting to be center stage here more and more, isn't it? Bloomberg News via mining.com. Zimbabwe has banned the export of unprocessed raw lithium with immediate effect as part of the efforts to have key raw materials in electric vehicle batteries processed locally. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the news, okay? This is what is happening here. They're not going to put up with the WTO telling them what to do and where they can process their raw materials. Like If Europe thinks they're going to pull that off, and if the WTO thinks they're going to pull that off, they don't understand what's going on out there. Because these stories that we're seeing, there is a clear pattern. Indonesia, the Congo, Zimbabwe, within weeks of each other. So Mines Minister Winston Chitando wrote in an order stated, quote, no lithium-bearing ores or unbeneficiated lithium whatsoever shall be exported from Zimbabwe to another country, end quote, without written permission. Mining companies that are building processing plants will be excluded from the directive. Deputy Mines Minister Polit Kamba Mura said by phone on Tuesday. So, I mean, it's just couldn't be any more clear. We are processing this stuff here. 
we are keeping our riches here. You are not going to take our riches and then make all this money out of it. We are going to make the money. He continues, and we have another quote further down the article. We have done this in good faith for the growth of the industry. If we continue exporting raw lithium, we will go nowhere. We want to see lithium batteries being developed in the country. Okay, like it just couldn't be any more obvious. This is a massive story. We see it in Indonesia, the DRC, and now in Zimbabwe. Fascinating. Speaking of processing, Electra Battery Materials launches Battery Materials Recycling Demonstration Plant in Ontario. This is by Musa Imran at the Northern Miner. Electra Battery Materials announced the launch of a demonstration plant designed to recover and recycle high-value elements found in lithium-ion batteries, including nickel, cobalt, lithium, copper, and graphite at its refinery complex north of Toronto. So you see, it's not even the, just the Global South. It's everybody is kind of wising up here and realizing that they are giving away everything when they are not processing their materials locally. It's sort of like Canadian oil. You could argue it's the same thing. Like, why aren't we processing more of our heavy oil in Canada? In a sense, you could argue, you know, it's kind of not that smart to not have your own refineries in country. You're just, I mean, these things are money trees. You know, they just grow money. So anyways, continuing on, Electra claims it will process up to 75 tons of black mass material in batch mode using its proprietary hydrometallurgical process. The company says it expects to complete the black mass recycling demonstration plant in the first quarter of 2023. Commissioning of the plant started in mid-October. So they're moving really quickly here. Pending the successful completion of the demonstration plant, Electra says it will assess whether to continue processing black mass through 2023 with material supplied by its business partners or from third parties. And we have a quote from Trent Mell, Electra's CEO, who said in a news release, Quote, with the outlook for electric vehicle adoption in North America becoming increasingly bullish as a result of the recent passage of the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act and the considerable investments made by automotive companies to electrify their fleet, the need for a domestic supply of battery-grade material supply, whether through primary refining or recycling processes, becomes critical. Indeed. So, interesting movements there. And finally, J.P. Morgan announces new climate targets covering iron and steel. And this is also Bloomberg News via mining.com. J.P. Morgan Chase is upping its climate ambitions, announcing a slew of new emissions reduction targets for its financing to carbon-intensive businesses, including airlines and cement manufacturers. So if they want to, if, if airlines and cement manufacturers want their businesses financed by J.P. Morgan, there will be emission reduction targets. The largest U.S. bank said in this year's climate report published Thursday that it plans to reduce the carbon intensity of its aviation financing portfolio by 36% by 2030 from a 2021 baseline. In the same period, J.P. Morgan says it aims to cut the carbon intensity of funding to iron ore and steel companies by 31% and 29% for cement sector financings. You know, I've heard people talking about the oil market and how a lot of this stuff could end up going private where just private financiers decide that, you know, the emissions are less important or are not as uh, large, you could see a lot of this stuff go private. I thought it would, who knows, but I thought it was a pretty interesting point. And finally, just a quote from Heather Zeichel, J.P. Morgan's global head of sustainability, who said in an interview, quote, this is proof that we're doing the work we need to do, setting a foundation with clients on climate and making progress on the promises we made. 
And she continues later on in this article, when a bank of our size sets those targets, given our role in the economy, that matters. It helps put those sectors on track and support the work of our clients to decarbonize as well. So those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to the website, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on December 27th, gold is trading at $1,810.46 per ounce. That is $5 higher than last week. Silver is trading at $24.15 per ounce. That is $0.46 higher than last week. Platinum is trading at $1,027.86 per ounce. That is $28 higher than last week. And palladium is trading at $1,779.45 per ounce. That is $98 higher than last week after that big drop, but still, you know, definitely on the lower side of its trading range there. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading four cents higher at $3.77 per pound. Aluminum is a penny lower at $1.06 per pound. Lead is five cents higher at a dollar three per pound, and nickel is forty nine cents lower at thirteen dollars and nine cents per pound. Tin is nine cents higher at ten dollars and eighty six cents per pound. Cobalt is a penny higher at twenty three dollars and twenty five cents per pound, and zinc is seven cents lower at one dollar and thirty five cents per pound. Zooming out, it looks to me like we have a consolidation from what I was describing earlier in the episode as buoyant metal prices. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, Lucara Diamond, President and CEO Ira Thomas, in my interview with her at the Canadian Mining Symposium in London, at Canada House there in that wonderful location. She's a Canadian geologist with over 25 years of experience in the Canadian mining industry, including her previous roles as Vice President of Aber Resources, which is now Dominion Diamond, CEO of Stornoway Diamond and CEO of Kamenak Gold. And in 2007, she founded Lucara Diamond with partners Lucas Lundin and Catherine McLeod Seltzer. And since 2018, she is president and CEO of the company. So she has a wealth of information on the diamond industry. We couldn't be happier to have her there. And she answered a lot of questions as to where we stand in the diamond industry. I hope you enjoy it. And I will see you on the other side. is the president and CEO of Lucara Diamond, a Canadian mining company based out of Botswana. In a sense, Ira Thomas in this industry is someone who needs no introduction. I think it's going to be a great discussion to get a true expert in the field and their view on what's going on in the diamond market, which has been a very interesting topic of discussion for years now. I mean, I remember the synthetic diamonds and everything. So to open up, Ira, first welcome. Thank you. So tell us, how's the health of the diamond market? It sounded like it kind of had problems during COVID, and then it's kind of come back. So how are things? You know, that's exactly right. So we went into COVID um, 
with a challenging market environment, I would say. And there was a lot of my peer group of companies that really struggled through that phase. Uh, fortunately for us, mining was declared an essential service, so we were able to keep our mine open. But what's really exciting is that post-COVID, we emerged into what I think is the best diamond market in the better part of a decade. And that's really being spurred on by fundamental improvements to the supply and demand, where we have global supply of rough diamonds now on a strong decline. By contrast, demand actually for luxury products and diamonds has never been better. So we're, we're in a much stronger market environment than we were three years ago. Fascinating. And so as we kind of step back and look at it globally, so how have you been affected by these recent moves with Russia and just supply chains in general? How has this affected and impacted your business? Where are we right now? Yeah, listen, I think the Russian situation is definitely putting additional pressure on supply. There's no question. I mean, people will debate the efficacy of some of the sanctions. I don't have direct insight as to how many Russian diamonds are making it onto the market. But what I will say is that through the conflict with Ukraine, we have seen much higher interest in diamond provenance, particularly with the luxury brands. Consumers today really want to know where their diamonds are coming from, and they want to know that they're supporting responsible businesses that care about the environment and their social commitments, and of course, are well governed. So we've seen a lot of interest in Lucara and the work that we're doing in our own supply chain as a result. You know, the pressures that we're seeing around Russia and Ukraine, and we're actually quite excited about that interest because, you know, we've been on a journey over the last uh, several years to really transform our outlook to how we sell diamonds to really meet the expectations of consumers, and we're really seeing that gain traction. Very interesting, yeah, and I assume, you know, Gen Z and Gen Y and younger generations are all the more concerned about the providence of where diamonds come from. So how does a company go about doing that? I mean, everybody in the industry talks about ESG, but I mean, what, what are the practicalities of that? How does one become, in a sense, if I understand you correctly, a green diamond miner? Well, that's a great question, and you know, I think like the entire industry, you know, we're really focused on and, and being able to communicate the work that we're doing in these areas, because I think, quite frankly, the industry has been improving and has, has done a pretty good job, but we haven't done a great job in, in really communicating that. So we are focused on, on that piece. Um, you know, for Lucara, it's a, it's a pretty straightforward story. We're mining in the country of Botswana. This is where our flagship asset is located. We've been mining there for 10 years. Botswana is a country that I like to refer to as the Switzerland of Africa because it is a country that has been, you know, benefiting from diamond mining for more than 50 years. They own their resources. They've used the revenues from diamond mining to pave roads, build schools, um, and hospitals. And if you look at our workforce, you know, we are 99% Botswanan. And we have the first ever female managing director of a mine in Botswana who was born and educated in Botswana. So I think it's a, it's a real testament to the efforts of that nation and the companies that have been working to really, you know, grow with Botswana and the Botswanan economy. So, so our story is easier, I would say, in some ways. You know, we do get some questions around, you know, how green is a, is a diamond versus a, 
an artificial diamond. And, and that's something actually that's also a pretty easy story to tell because if you think about it in a natural deposit in a diamond mines, basically are ancient volcanoes and they've brought diamonds up from deep in the earth's mantle. So mother nature has done all the hard work in turning carbon into diamond. When you try and do that in a lab, it takes a huge amount of baseload power, and you know, we estimate that lab-grown diamonds consume uh, or have a carbon footprint that's three times higher than a naturally mined diamond. So, you know, it's about getting those facts out there. I think that and consumers are interested in this. That's very interesting. And so, as far as the actual energy consumption, have you guys run the numbers on this sort of thing? Absolutely. As, and see, like synthetic diamonds perhaps even use more energy? Is, is that possible? It, it or? entirely depends on the power source, but most of the lab-grown diamonds are, are actually manufactured in, in China, and they're using coal-fired power as their baseload power. It's very difficult. You can use hydropower for, for some of these polishing facilities, and there are greener institutions in the U.S., but by and large, the bulk of these lab-grown facilities are using coal-based power. Interesting. So, and I kind of want to go back to the younger generation. How much of a percentage, say, of the diamond market is synthetic, and how much real demand is there? We're kind of trending in that three to five percent right now, with the potential to go to seven, maybe ten. Um, but the way to think about lab-grown is, you know, in some ways, it's a completely different marketplace. That's how we we see it. The technology for lab-grown diamonds has improved tremendously over the past decade. And so it's a really a race to the bottom. You buy a lab-grown diamond because it's cheaper. You know, that improvement in technology has really served to bifurcate those markets. So you buy a lab-grown diamond because it's cheap and you don't worry about taking it on vacation or it's fashion jewelry. But when it comes to life's most important commemorative moments, the natural diamond market is the market of choice. Fascinating. And as far as just the geography, of diamond demand. Who's buying all the diamonds? Is it kind of spread out all around the world or is it something that's say more focused in, I don't know, China and India? Who, who's buying the diamonds mostly? Uh, the US is by far the largest market. Um, you know, it's trending at around that 50% mark. Hmm. And then you go to China and India beyond that. Uh, but it is our most important market. And, and one of the reasons that this focus on provenance um, is, is really starting to affect change in the supply chain. The big brands won't buy a diamond unless they know where it came from. That is fascinating. So this is another, we might say, another ESG uh, type uh, ramification. Or, so, and so how do, you, uh, how do you determine the provenance of a diamond? Well, you know, there's, there's lots of different technology that can be used, but for us, you know, we're really selling our diamonds three ways. And the, and the first way is that we are taking all of our diamonds that are large, and I should mention that the unique thing about our ore deposit is that 70% of the value is in diamonds larger than 10 carats. And we are renowned for our production of, of very large high-value diamonds. We are the only diamond mine in the world to have recovered three diamonds in excess of 1,000 carats in size. So it's a very special product. And what we have decided to do is to work with a single expert manufacturer in the country of Belgium. And so all of our large diamonds are now being manufactured and sold as polished diamonds. So we have complete control of where our diamonds are going. And once those diamonds are purchased, 
there is the potential then to continue to follow that diamond through the value chain using blockchain technology. So we guarantee the provenance of all of those big stones. And then for our smaller stones in the, in the better colors and qualities, we have developed and commercialized a brand new technology um, and created the first ever web-based digital marketplace for the sale of rough diamonds. And this is something that's long overdue. Um, I, you know, we, we, we view this as the Shopify of the diamond industry. It's about creating a much more efficient um, opportunity to transact diamonds, but more importantly, again, this technology is underlain by blockchain technology, so we can confidently tell you where each and every one of those diamonds come from. We started selling our own diamonds on Clara. This is the, the, the marketplace. Uh, but now we're opening Clara up to the entire world and we have other producers and other sellers of secondary diamonds also selling their diamonds through this unique digital marketplace. So you're using this Clara platform as you're describing it. You're using blockchain. Contrast that with how I guess it was done before you created this marketplace. In a sense, you felt the need to create this marketplace because of where we were yeah. uh, in, the, in the diamond mining industry and how they were sold. So in a sense, what has changed with what you're doing from where were we? Well, I think that's a great question because you know we're talking really about provenance right now. But actually a big rationale for going this way is, is really around unlocking value and creating a more efficient supply chain. The way we traditionally transacted diamonds hasn't changed in 100 years. And if you think about it, diamonds are a, it's a challenging commodity. You can't look up the price in a newspaper each day. Every diamond is unique. They all have unique price points. And so if you're a producer, the challenge around that is you're, you're, you're basically mining individual mineralogical specimens. So how do you take that production and sell it regularly for repeatable revenues. And the way that we solve that problem is that we basically would build up inventory over time and then we would put them into broad categories or you know buckets if you like based on size, color, quality, and then we would force our customers to buy an entire bucket. So okay, you only want those 10 stones too bad, you got to take all 30. And you know we did this because there was the concern that if you didn't, you wouldn't get repeatable revenues. And what we've gone through in the last few years is a realization that we have technology today to make this much easier. Yes, we can sell individual mineralogical specimens, actually. We can sell diamonds individually. And in doing so, we're actually going to better meet the needs of our buyers. They'll get exactly what they want and we will no longer be selling diamonds for what I call average prices when you lump them all together. So the effect of Clara basically is to deliver diamonds individually based on demand all over the world. People can put orders onto Clara without leaving their office. Normally they'd have to get on a plane and come to Botswana to view the diamonds. Now they can do this all through our digital marketplace. And the end result is that we make more for our diamonds and our buyers are, are achieving better margins. So we're really creating a much more stable marketplace that benefits everybody. Yeah, so if I understand this correctly, then it's a more accurate, basically, buying and selling situation where if I'm a buyer of diamonds, 
I'm no longer buying a bulk, like you say, a bucket of diamonds. Rather, I am, I kind of know what I'm getting. It's totally transparent and you can be confident of the source. Okay, so here's just kind of a larger question. Are people still buying diamonds primarily for marriage? And if they're not buying it primarily for marriage, what else do they buy it for? As you say, commemorative events, is there anything else? Like, I mean, I suppose diamonds have industrial use as well, as we know from drilling. Again, because I'm, I'm just trying to understand, in a sense, you mm -hmm. mine diamonds, and then what do you do with them, right? So could you just sort of shed some insight on that? Sure. I mean, most of the value in the diamond business, 99% of the value is actually in jewelry. So the industrial use is, is really a byproduct of anything that's coming out of our mines for consumption in the diamond jewelry market. But the diamond jewelry market is also interesting to kind of look at, because if you actually track the performance of diamond jewelry, as a luxury product over the last decade, you would notice that it is quite dramatically underperformed the consumption of other luxury goods. And we believe a lot of that is because of the opacity of this industry. You know, nobody really understanding the value of a diamond, the fact that it's not transparent, everyone has a view of someone passing a briefcase across a dark alley. You know, these are not easy things, uh, you know, this is not a, uh, you know, something for a consumer that's very attractive. So we've had to really, I think, look hard in the mirror and, and find a way to uh, bring transparency to the industry. And that's why now you see large brands like Louis Vuitton, which is the largest luxury brand in the world, uh, bought Tiffany two years ago in the middle of COVID. And they bought Tiffany because they can see the tremendous opportunity to bring diamond jewelry along in this, in this journey of, of luxury goods uh, consumption. And so that gives us a lot of confidence as a producer, as we're thinking about our investment strategy on build and expand mines and look for more assets. You know, our forecast is for that diamond jewelry consumption to continue to, to really increase. And bridal or engagement rings continues to make up a, a large portion of that demand. But what's really fascinating now is that the marketing strategy around diamonds is, is, is definitely much broader. You know, young women are, are buying their own diamonds, commemorating, you know, seemingly small things. It could be a new job. But these are um, growing trends of, of consuming diamond jewelry for different, for different reasons. Uh, but bridal still does make up um, a large proportion of that. But it's, it's definitely evolving. We have a lot of investors here, so I'm also kind of curious to know, like it sounds to me from what you're telling me that there is a compelling case for a diamond company. Why should an investor, you know, maybe a lot of people are interested in copper or gold here. Why should they, why should they consider diamonds as an investment? Uh, that's a great question. I think diamonds is the only mined commodity that really doesn't behave like a mined commodity because it is a consumer marketed product. So you get exposure to mining, but at the same time, you've got the stability of something that goes up with GDP. And if you have an outlook that the world is, is, is going to continue to grow, albeit even now in a slower pace, then you will have a positive view on the commodity. But I think the more important reason to look at the diamond space right now is the fact that this sector has grossly underperformed. Even with the strongest diamond market that we've seen, in the better part of a decade, we're still trading at three-year lows. Hmm. And so it has not really, and I think quite frankly, it's because it's a small space and it has been a challenging space. There's very few ways to play the diamond space. 
and so, you know, getting back on the radar, I think, is, you know, our big job here over the next 12 to 24 months to explain the compelling investment rationale that exists within the space with companies that are trading at, you know, 0.3, 0 0.4 PNAV uh, on assets that are high margin. You know, we have an extremely high margin asset. We uh, generate revenues of between, you know, 215 and $225 million a year. It's a 60% margin. We're looking at it EBITDA of over $80 million, and we're expanding to extend our mine life out to 2040. So we think there's a lot of good reasons to be looking at this space, and Lucara in particular. Right, and you've been running Lucara since 2018 as CEO, uh, if I recall. Yes. So we're also at Canada House here. How do you feel from a governmental perspective as someone that runs a mining company, albeit in Botswana, but you know, a Canadian mining company, do you feel like you have the support that you'd like to have, say, from the Canadian government and just from you know, governments in general? How do you feel about that? No, I think maybe not wearing my diamond hat, but maybe wearing my Canadian mining hat in general and maybe my oil and gas hat, I would say no. I don't feel like we've had the right support. I think we have not been forward-looking. I think there's a huge opportunity upon us right now in Canada with the incredible natural endowment we have, particularly in some of these strategic metals that we talked about earlier. And we need to create an environment that encourages companies to spend risk capital. Well, one, they need to be able to raise risk capital, and two, um, to to invest it and, and make new discoveries. And I think Canada has done some good things with investment tax credits for certain minerals, but I think more broadly, uh, they need to really step up their game and, and recognizing that mining is not a sunset industry for Canada. It is the future, and, and if they get the regulatory regime right and they're able to create an environment where things can get done in a timely manner, I think we could see significantly higher investment in Canada for all commodities, and you know we, we need to push hard for that. Right, and of course, you know other uh, people in the mining community. So, and you mentioned what sounds like to me uh, permitting times. Uh, so, from your perspective, is permitting times the main issue, or is it something else? It, it, permitting is part of it, but it's everything. I mean, most of our natural resources are stranded in parts of the country that have no access. We haven't invested in the development of northern infrastructure in 50 years in a, in a really consistent way. I think the last major road built into the NWT was by John Diefenbaker in the 60s. I mean, it's quite astonishing. So it's, it's not just permitting. It's really about thinking about the whole opportunity differently. Obviously, there has been uh, you know some effort to fund infrastructure development, but again, We've, we've got to go quicker, and we've go at, got to go at it, you know, I think, with real commitment across the country. And conversely, do you think the mining industry could do more to basically to work with government, and should they be more proactive on their side? You know, we always have to be part of the solution. It's never uh, a good thing to just point fingers. You have to come with solutions. So, yes, we've got to continue to engage uh, as often as we can and, and to ensure that we're being heard, but to come with credible solutions on how to make improvements. So I think it is upon us to do that. Otherwise, you know, nothing will change. We've got to be very proactive on that front. Okay, excellent. So we've kind of discussed many aspects of the diamond market. We've gone to mining. So what, in your view, uh, have we not talked about? In a sense, what are you talking to your friends about? What's exciting 
in diamonds right now from your perspective? You know, actually what is exciting, and I can talk about this because it was just reported publicly at a mining conference in, in Yellowknife a couple of weeks ago, but the first new kimberlite discovery uh, in northern Canada in 25 years was made about two months ago by Arctic Diamond Company. It's now a private company, but it was formerly Dominion, using machine learning technology, deep mm. machine learning, and I think that that is tremendously exciting. We, in turn, have secured that same technology and, and company to, to explore in Botswana. So, you know, we're very focused on building an underground project right now. It's costing us a half a billion dollars. We are not doing a lot of exploration. However, um, we are doing a very modest amount of exploration using this new technology. And so I think that is a tremendously exciting opportunity for the future, not only in diamonds, but in other applications on our industry. But ways of incorporating new technology uh, to make our businesses more efficient, to make new discoveries, and to really position us for long-term future development. So I'm excited about that, and I'm, I'm hopeful that that discovery in turn will generate some more interest and, and shine a light on the diamond industry, which has been heavily underinvested in diamond exploration over the last uh, 20 years. And hopefully we're going to get um, some excitement back into the, uh, the Canadian diamond exploration world and Botswana as well. And so ends the year for the Northern Miner Podcast. Thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Ira Thomas, where I feel like we don't just get a primer on the diamond market, but a primer on the diamond market in 2022. And there is a lot that seems to have changed in the last few years, particularly since COVID. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed that. And I hope you have a happy holidays and a happy new year. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory, share it with your friends, and until next week, take care. <laughs>